Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 72 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Lime Changed Every Aspect of My Life, an interview with Ashley Bellinger. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Today's podcast guest is Ashley Bellinger. Ashley Bellinger is a young woman from Minnesota. She currently works at a functional neurology center. In her early 20s, Ashley Bellinger started to exhibit the symptoms of a tick disease. She got migraines that would last for months, and she would fall asleep driving to and from her work as a teacher. At its worst, Ashley Bellinger would walk into a room and forget why she was there. After five years of worsening symptoms, she diagnosed herself with leaky gut and went on a candida diet. It was during this time that Ashley Bellinger's cousin fell ill and was bedridden. Her cousin had success treating with an LLMD, and Ashley decided to try it out. There, she tested positive for Lyme disease via a muscle test and started the Lyme Stop treatment. Throughout her treatment, Ashley Bellinger joined groups on Facebook. She found solace in the friends that she made and wants to give others the hope and guidance that was given to her. Hey, Ashley Bellinger, and welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Uh, we're blessed to have you, Ashley. So can you introduce yourself to our listeners by telling them where you live and what you do? I currently live in Minnesota, so south of the Twin Cities. Um, right now, I work at a functional neurology center, but before that, I was a second and third grade teacher. And could you tell our listeners a little bit about your life before you began to show the symptoms of your tick disease? So my symptoms kind of began in my early 20s, just as basic headaches, but um, before I really got sick, um, I was a new teacher. My husband and I recently had gotten engaged. We had purchased a house, so we were wedding planning, getting you know the house ready, doing all the projects. I would typically get up about 3.45 to drive about 40 minutes to the gym near my, um, the school that I taught at. Would work out for anywhere for an hour to an hour and a half, and then go into my classroom for anywhere from eight to 10 hours, and then come home, do some more training for half marathons after or outside of the school hours. Other than that, you know, spending time with family, friends, my husband and I like to do a lot of international traveling, obviously when, you know, health permits it. But when I became sick, all that kind of, you know, fell to the wayside. So talk to us about how your symptoms began to develop. So in my early 20s, it would start as, you know, headaches that stayed a little bit longer than they should. And then those turned into migraines. And then those became more frequent. So I went to my mom's neurologist and he just said that migraines ran in our family and that they can be considered hereditary. But when they got to the point that they were lasting anywhere from a week to a couple weeks, and then it, at one point they would last months, I mean, eight or nine months at a time, I wasn't, I wasn't going to settle for hearing the answer that they're hereditary. Um, and then after that, more things started to come up, you know, joint pain, physical pain, inability to sleep, forgetting simple words, which was odd, or just not knowing what I was doing. I'd walk into a room and I would have no idea why I was there. So Ashley, how did these developing symptoms impact each of the different life events that you're participating in? For example, did you lose the ability to go to the gym? I'm pretty stubborn in nature. So it really wasn't until I physically couldn't walk from one room to another that I stopped going to the gym because I didn't have any answers. I just was like, okay, I have to push through this. So the gym, I didn't stop doing until I literally almost couldn't physically walk or breathe. So that took a while for me to give up. 
obviously I had to give up training. So training went to the wayside, but I still would go to the gym. Um, my work hours, I had to cut them short because for me to make it through a day physically was a miracle. Spending time with family and friends, I had to say no, just because at one point I would go to work, teach for the day, come home, and was home about 4.30. I would nap for anywhere for an hour to an hour and a half so I can make dinner. And then I'd have to go right back to bed. And sometimes I would even sleep in my clothes for work thinking, okay, if I got 10 more minutes of sleep, I won't fall asleep driving to and from work. Because I'd fall asleep driving to and from work and my commute was 35 to 40 minutes a day each way. So I just basically had to start saying no to things and I didn't understand it at that point. So yeah, it impacts everything in your life. I mean, your marriage, your friends, your family, your career. Well, let's talk about that. How did the folks that you work with respond to your reduction in, uh, in commitments, meaning you were unable to do as much at work as you had before. How did your colleagues treat you as a consequence of that? For a while, I put on a good face and I didn't let anyone know what was really going on because I had no answers. So how do you describe to someone the amount of physical pain you're in when you don't have a diagnosis? Or how do you explain the fact that you don't know, you know the name for a simple item like a pen? So a lot of times they didn't realize how sick I was because one, I didn't know and I didn't let on. But once I finally got a diagnosis, once I got to the point where I was going to have to leave teaching, I went to my principal who he was phenomenal. He used to joke. um, He'd be like, I saw your car in the parking lot on Saturday. You need to spend time with your family and friends. So he used to tell me like, slow down. It's okay. But I got to a point where I asked him, I said, I don't think I can do this anymore. And he goes, what can we do to help you? How can we help you so that you get healthy and so that you can continue doing what you love? So at one point I was working Monday and Tuesday, and then every Wednesday I would take off. So my principal was phenomenal. He was very supportive. My fellow teachers picked up the slack for me. I mean, they had to. I couldn't do simple things like walk downstairs to make copies because if I did that, I was done for the day. Were, were there any people in your life that you would consider to be doubters, people who weren't as supportive as your colleagues and your principal? I'm sure there were. They obviously didn't say anything to my face. Um, I think just because they knew the lifestyle I led before getting sick, that, you know, if there's a reason why I can't do something, that it's obviously a very big reason. I'm sure people thought I was crazy. You know, when you kind of dive into the holistic world, when you're not getting any answers, people look at you like, you're really going to do that? Or you were just fine, you know, 10 minutes ago, but you can't do anything now. So I'm sure people had their own ideas and opinions, but thankfully they didn't share them with me. And if they did, maybe I just don't remember them or I blocked them out. I don't know. How did your relationship with your husband change as your symptoms began to develop? My poor husband, I was pretty much sick. So we met and then I started getting sick shortly after that. I had some symptoms like the migraines when we met, but nothing to stop me from doing anything yet. So he got to see a glimpse of, you know, the go, 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 the nonstop. But then slowly I would either forget to do things or, you know, I just didn't have any, you know, emotions towards things. I just wouldn't care. So he had to be my caregiver. He had to pick up the slack around the house. And I didn't understand what that would mean to him, you know, because I was so consumed with my physical pain, my neurological issues, that I wasn't able to put myself in his position and how it must feel for him to, you know, lose the life that he thought we were going to build at that point. 
So once I was able to get better, I was able to really put myself in his shoes and say, wow, I can't imagine the toll that this took on you and all the things that you had to do for me and for the house and how that must have emotionally impacted you. How do you think it did impact him? And what has he said to you when you've had these types of conversations? I don't want to speak for him, but just from like general things, we'll joke now, now that I'm better, because now I'm more laid back. And if something doesn't get done on the to-do list, I'm like, eh, doesn't matter. And he's still in that mindset of, you know, trying to pick up the pieces. And he's kind of has to learn now that it's okay that I can do certain things. So we joke now that we've switched roles and now that he's the one that's on top of everything. And now I'm like, eh, it's all right. We'll get that fixed later or I'll, I'll mail that bill later, you know? So it's just funny to see he's still kind of in that mindset of trying to do all the things where I, I can do some things now, or I'm just not worried about things that I used to do right away. Do you think there was a time or there is a time now that uh, your husband suffered from any burnout from all of the obligations he had to assume that he didn't necessarily know he was signing up for when he first met you? I'm sure there was, but where I was at cognitively, I would have had no idea. I wouldn't have been able to understand it. Even if he were to have physically said, I'm exhausted, I don't know if I can do this, it would not have registered with me because I would say I was on a good day at that point when I was really sick, I was maybe at a second, third grade level. But other than that, I mean, it would be like a three or four, maybe a five-year-old. You know, you don't have control over your emotions. You don't have control over how you react to a situation. You don't know what certain things are. You don't even know how to do basic skills, like sometimes tie your shoe or shower or make a grocery list. So let's talk about how your symptoms did progress between the time that they first developed and when you ultimately had to essentially shut down all of your professional and personal commitments. So early 20s started as the migraines and then the fatigue came. And every time I would go into a doctor, they would say, you're just tired because you're newly engaged. You bought a house, you're working out, you know, you're a new teacher. So I heard all those reasons why, you know, as a female, it's just stress. I just need to slow down. But at one point when I had too many symptoms to describe, I had a calendar for three months and every single day I would take my temperature. I would write down what I ate. I would write down all the symptoms that I had and anything that would have impacted my day. So say it was a longer or more stressful workday. I would write that down so that I can compare each day to try to find out what it was that was causing an increase or decrease in my symptoms. So I brought that in to a doctor. And again, I heard that, well, you're anxious, you're depressed, or you're just stressed, you need to slow down. So I didn't get any answers there. So that didn't really help. At one point, I was told it could be leukemia, because I would go into the doctors and I, after researching online, I know they say, don't Google your symptoms. But honestly, at that point, that was my only saving grace because it would lead me down one rabbit hole. So I would go in and I'd say, okay, I want to be tested for diabetes because I had all the symptoms for diabetes. And that test came back fine. And I said, okay, well, I need to be tested for mold. And, you know, I want these biomarkers on my labs run and they would all come back great. And they were like, you're fine. And then they told me I was a hypochondriac and I was crazy. And then what else? I went to the Mayo at one point thinking, okay, because I live in Minnesota, the Mayo is very well known for, you know, what they're able to do and diagnose people with. So I called and 
got a couple different appointments. I saw a pulmonologist in hopes that they would be able to help me with my breathing issues and wondering if it was asthma. And they diagnosed me with chronic sinus infections, which I knew I had because when I went there, I told them, I said, I have these chronic sinus infections. They don't go away. I don't know what's causing them to happen because I've never had them. So they unfortunately were absolutely no help. They did tell me to go see an ENT, so ear, nose, and throat. And I did because they thought he could help with the migraines, the sinus infections, and a couple other things. And he was wonderful and amazing and listened to me and had me do a surgery, a sinus surgery, that unfortunately was not needed because my sinus infections were caused from the candida and not from anything structurally. Same with the migraines. So I had an unnecessary surgery. Yeah, I mean, pretty much like everyone else's story, you name it, I've had those symptoms other than seizures. I had everything except for seizures. So Ashley, I'd like to go a little bit more in depth with your symptoms because from your pre-interview questionnaire, you got sick in your early 20s and diagnosed at 30. So for almost 10 years, your symptoms started to progress, worsen, and new symptoms started to get into your life. Can you talk to us as the symptoms progressed, what new symptoms arose? So flu-like symptoms were the beginning where you're kind of achy, you feel like you have the chills. Um, I would take my temperature a lot and I would never run a fever, but I always felt like I had a fever, which I later found out is very common with Lyme patients. So at one point I was in the emergency room and my fever registered at 101, but for me it was closer to 104 or 105 because I was usually anywhere from two to four degrees under. So flu-like was kind of the beginning and then it would turn more into issues with breathing and talking. So the air hunger, I don't know if I'm looking at my list right now, I had to write it all down because I couldn't remember it. Extreme fatigue, hair loss, night sweats. Oh, the night sweats were awful. I used to take a towel and put it underneath myself because I would sweat so much and then get so cold that I'd have to change my sheets. And in the middle of the night, it's really hard to change your sheets a couple times. So I put a towel underneath me and I'd switch those out. Fevers, digestive issues, inability to regulate my temperature. So any given moment, I would go from freezing to incredibly hot, almost like a hot flash. There was a point in my classroom where I had to do bus duty. So I wore snow pants outside because it was so cold. And then I came back inside and I wore my snow pants and my jacket hat for two and a half hours in my classroom because I was so cold and I was not able to warm up and I still wasn't hot. The average person should have been sweating and all that and walking around, but I was still cold. Vision issues was another one that came on rather slowly and would kind of come and go. So I'd have floaters, inability to concentrate or remember things. The post-nasal drip was awful. I remember having to be careful if I were to bend down to help a student because your nose would all of a sudden randomly drip. It was like someone turned on a faucet and then it just would like come pouring out out of nowhere. The itchy eyes would come and go, swollen glands. So it would feel like I had a sore throat, but I've never had strep. The heart palpitations were horrendous to the point where then it would send me in a panic attack because I thought that my heart was going to explode. I had either no appetite or an extreme appetite where I could eat anything in sight. Metal taste in the mouth, that was a hard one because I would go to the dentist or other doctors and they weren't, on, they weren't sure why I had that. I got five cavities in a year at 30. That was my first five cavities, which was a bummer. The bone aches. Your bones hurt. I don't know how else to describe it, but 
just all the bones in your body feel bruised and broken at the same time. Um, the ringing in the ears was awful. It made going to sleep really hard. The persistent cough, so that made teaching really hard because I couldn't have a conversation without coughing so hard. And then I would cough up mucus. The dry mouth was horrible. I mean, I would drink anywhere from one to two gallons of water a day, and I still would have dry mouth. So that made talking really hard. So Ashley, you had such a wide array of symptoms, and you were going to all these different specialists to see what was the root cause. Did any of these specialists misdiagnose you with anything throughout your almost 10-year journey before you got your diagnosis? The male said chronic sinus infections, which I knew because I told them. They said anxiety and depression, so they wanted to give me medication, which, yeah, there was anxiety and depression, but it was stemmed from the infections. One other doctor said that I could have leukemia. That's how he started. He goes, well, I think you could have leukemia. And I was like, well, I don't think that's the case. So no official diagnosis other than the chronic sinus infections, but they all had their theories. And how many doctors did you see over this, this almost 10-year window? I didn't officially count, but I would say eight or so different MDs because I pretty much would take any doctor that would get me in when I wanted a certain test or lab run. The pulmonologist at the Mayo, there's another specialist at the Mayo, I can't remember, and then an ENT, and then two different chiropractors. As your health continued to decline, being this real superstar, you were, you were teaching, you were planning your wedding, you were doing all this great stuff with your life, you were training for a marathon, and then all of a sudden your health just steadily declines. What were your friends and family thinking as you got to the later point of your symptoms before your diagnosis? Did they think that this was really a mental health illness, or were they supportive and pushing you to get an actual physical diagnosis at that point still? Uh, I don't think they truly understood the severity of it because I didn't understand because at that point I couldn't convey all my symptoms because I was so, I was having trouble cognitively describing things. So I don't think they truly understood. They were able to see, you know, the physical changes. Once it became the physical changes in my face, my hair falling out, you know, the dark circles under the eyes, losing 15 pounds, then they're like, well, what's going on? Why don't you have an answer? I, I guess, and again, I was so low cognitively that maybe they did share and I just didn't understand it. I know that for a while when I thought it was Lyme, I would send all this information to my mom and to my husband to say, I think this is what it is. And then that's when I did the Western blot and I never got a positive. So I remember thinking, okay, well, this, this has to be Lyme. There's no other explanation. I've gone down every other avenue and I was so disappointed because I thought I was finally on to something. Did you know at the time that the Western blot was not a very accurate test? Yes and no. I had read a little bit about the two common blood tests that are given, but I didn't know, this sounds awful, but I didn't know how pointless it was, to be honest, in my opinion. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, but in my, in my opinion, I didn't understand how pointless the test was. So at one point you thought Lyme, you had the Western blot, it came back negative and you moved on to try to identify other things that could be the root cause of your sickness. But then you bounced back to Lyme at some point and got a diagnosis. So can you walk us through that journey of finding the right doctor, getting the right test and getting your diagnosis? Yeah. So my cousin, she's quite a few years younger than me and she was in high school at the time that I was going through this. And she was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, and she was bedridden, unable to go to school. And she heard about my current Lyme doctor, 
And she thought for sure that I had Lyme and she eventually went to him and got tested and found out she has it and she got treated. And at this point it was all pretty new information to me. So I thought it was kind of crazy because he tests via muscle testing. So I was like, I'll let her go through treatment with him um, using Lyme Stop. And I was like, I'll see how she does. She's bedridden. So we'll use her as a guinea pig and we'll see how it goes in like six months. And so while I was waiting to see how she did, I actually went to a Lyme literate MD in the Twin Cities, and she gave me a clinical diagnosis based on my symptoms and my Bell's palsy, which at that point I had never recognized it because I was too sick, and my goal honestly was to make it through the day. And then when my cousin started to get better, I went to see the doctor that she saw, and I was given a diagnosis with muscle testing. And he didn't look at my stack of paperwork that I brought. He didn't look at the paperwork that I brought him. And most people would think that's pretty negligent. But given what he does in via muscle testing, I think he wanted to prove to me that what he was doing was real and that it was accurate. So he diagnosed me based on certain points. And he would point out all these infections that he noticed. And he'd say, based on these infections, you have all these symptoms. And he was spot on with everything. And then we went over my paperwork together, which for me, that was great for me to see like, okay, he knows nothing about me and he's able to pinpoint everything I have going on. And then we went over my paperwork together. Can you walk us through the process of muscle testing and really what it is? So there's different varieties of muscle testing. There's like morphogenic field technique or more of like applied kinesiology, or I think it's called CBT, cranial biotic technique. And I could be wrong, um, but so he does something more along the CBT lines with Lyme Stop. So there are vials, and within those vials, it would contain the infections, or you can even have food sensitivities in there. And he'll hold the vials and move it around to different parts of my body, and somehow he gets a response. And um, his is a little different because he doesn't hold your actual arm up like some people do to test for a muscle lock. He's just able to hold it and get some sort of response or reaction friction-wise and tell me what infections there are. So he'll start with all the vials and then he'll go over to different parts of my body. So the vials, I'd say like the size of a small chapstick bottle, even smaller, or chapstick tube. And then he would move that around to different parts of the body. And then based on that, he would get a response and tell me, okay, so you have toxoplasmosis in your small intestine. So he was able to tell me all the infections I had and the location of all the infections. So once you had these diagnoses of Lyme and many, many other viruses and co-infections, what was your next step to start healing? So I did Lyme Stop treatment with him. There are two doctors that do Lyme Stop. Some other doctors do a similar technique, but only two doctors in the U.S. actually do Lyme Stop. And they also use magnet. So it's like a magnet therapy to help basically take your immune system, pinpoint it to the certain area in your body and say, here's an infection you need to, you know, the immune system needs to be activated to go to this location. So I started Lime Stop in September of 2017, and it's a week-long treatment. And you have anywhere from two to three appointments per day over a span of five days. And maybe this could have changed since I've done it so long ago. So um, I apologize if things have changed from when I initially did it, but I did two to three appointments in a day. The first one started as the longest, obviously, because they're doing the diagnosis. And given the number of infections I had, the appointment times 
got significantly shorter as my infection started to lessen. But it seems really strange, but I would go in there, he would um, use the muscle testing with the vials to find out where they are and then use the magnet to help and put it. So at one point I was laying down on the chiropractic table, the magnet was touching my head and it's bigger than, I say like, think of a brick or like a paver you use in landscaping, about that size. And one was touching my head and then he had another one in his hand and there's different kind of like in Chinese medicine or acupuncture, there's different points on the body and he would press on them and use the magnet to activate the immune system to go to that specific infection. And I'm sure there's far more scientific reasons or understanding behind it, but that's my basic understanding of it. When you were taking a less than traditional approach to your healing journey, was there anyone in your life that was doubting you and doubting the approach you were taking? Oh, everyone. They all thought I was crazy because I had started before that with um, using essential oils. And then from there, I started to learn about fragrance and the chemicals in our personal care products and cleaners. So at one point, I watched the movie Stink, which is amazing. Everyone should watch it. And I came home and I threw out every single personal care product we owned and all the cleaners in our house. And so my husband was like, are you okay? I know you don't feel good, but this is a lot of money you're throwing away here. So then I started to replace all that. And that was probably five years before my diagnosis. And then I dove down the rabbit hole of food and all the toxins in our food. And at one point I threw out everything in our cabinet that I couldn't eat because I had self-diagnosed myself with candida and leaky gut. And so I put myself on the candida diet for a year and a half before I knew um, Lyme and all the other infections. And both my Lyme doctor now and the other MD I saw told me that if I had not made those changes five years prior to ditch all the chemicals in my home, in our food, that I would have been in a wheelchair and completely bedridden. So to me, that spoke volumes that what I was doing, as crazy as it sounded, it helped my body. And so I was helping my body purge all the toxins so that when I went to treatment, that it would respond far better then had I not, you know, gotten all the toxins out of my body, had I not gotten my lymphatic system moving so that it could actually drain and do the things that it's designed to do. You had a 10-year window where you didn't have a diagnosis other than largely mental health issues. And now you're going through this healing journey where you're taking a less than traditional approach. How did the various doubters in your life impact your mental health? And how did you feel about yourself when you went 10 years without a diagnosis, and now you have people in your life who are doubting whether or not you're taking the proper approach to healing. It would depend on the day. There were some days that I could care less with what other people thought, and my mentality was, I'm the one living with this pain, and I don't accept feeling this way, and I want answers. So there are some days that it didn't matter to me, and I was going to just plow through the day, do what I had to do. And then other days, you know, when either some of your physical symptoms are heightened or some of the emotional symptoms are heightened, that it's really hard and you feel very isolated and alone. Um, and you wonder why people just don't wish you the best and want to support you. And it's not that people didn't want to support me. I think it's just they didn't know. And I was doing a lot of things that were considered unconventional and that were weird and until you're in that situation of willing to try anything to get better, most people aren't going to, you know, go, oh, yeah, I want to do a coffee enema. They're going to look at that and be like, no. So until you hit rock bottom, I understand why 
they thought it was strange or odd. And especially because I grew up, you know, following Western medicine and, you know, believing everything I was told. And it's not that doctors want to provide you with inaccurate information, but again, they're also not educated on the other options as well. So I get where they came from, where they're like, this is really weird. So I don't hold anything against people, but it makes sense that they were skeptical. Ashley, we've heard a lot about coffee enemas and how they are super, super helpful in alleviating some of your symptoms. So can you talk about how the use of coffee enemas have helped you? So it took me a good six months to feel comfortable doing it. I had heard about it for months prior in all the support groups I was in online. And that's also something I want to mention. If you are struggling, I would suggest joining a couple support groups because that's where I learned a lot from other people. You're going to learn a lot about unconventional methods from everyone else's personal experiences. And then from there, you can go and do your own research. You can bring it to your doctor and you can say, I want to try this. So I would say support groups are wonderful. But with the coffee enemas, I was at a point where I had to do them one in the morning before work. And it, you know, would take me about an hour to do it before teaching. And then I would come home and I'd have to do it again at night because it was the only thing that got me through the day with the migraines and the chronic fatigue. And through there, this was before my Lyme diagnosis, I was able to see parasites being expelled and was something that no one had ever addressed with me. So once I started doing the coffee enemas, I did them one in the morning and one at night for anywhere from seven to nine months. And then I would transition to one a day for seven to nine months. And then I would transition to every other day and so forth. But I would track in my phone the number of parasites that I would see being expelled so that I could see those, that number go down so that I knew that I was actually making progress. And as I was able to expel or, you know, kill or excrete parasites, my toxic load would go down and then some symptoms would start to go away. Now, did it take everything away? No. But at that point, if you can get rid of anywhere from two to four symptoms, that's like a miracle. Ashley, I'd like to walk back for a minute to the Lyme support groups that you're a part of. How did you find these folks? And were they the people that you were able to turn to when you had doubts yourself about taking a new approach, such as using a coffee enema or some other alternative therapy? So I just went on Facebook and would just type in Lyme disease or parasites or coffee enemas or SIBO or candida, whatever I thought it was that I was dealing with, whether I had a diagnosis or I didn't. And I found a lot of support groups, like one being chronic Lyme and high vibe. That one's really good because it's a positive group. Um, And I joined them. And the hard part at the beginning was there's a lot of stigma around being in a support group or the idea of therapy or the idea of mental illness in the United States. So that I had to get past that barrier of, you know, I need help and it's okay to ask for help. But through there, I was able to ask questions, listen to other people's experiences, make my own conclusions about what I thought was best for myself. And I actually met quite a few people that I'm, I've never met, but I'm still good friends with, you know, in real life now, and we'll call or text each other And that was huge to be able to make those connections where someone else understands what it's like to be fine one moment and, you know, better than the next. So I would suggest seeking out other people either online or in support groups that you form a relationship or connection with because they get what it's like. And so you going to them and quote unquote complaining 
isn't going to be a bad thing or a negative thing because at some point your family and friends can only hear so much if they don't see any changes happening. So to go to someone who gets it was a game changer for me. Ashley, why did you decide to go right to LimeStop and not look at more regular treatments that the, the Western world, world would prescribe like antibiotics or even something like an herbal treatment instead? So the one MD that I saw, and I only went to her because it gave my mom a peace of mind because she was on the whole antibiotic route, like we need to do antibiotics. And there was something in my gut saying, that's not the right thing for you. Don't do it. It's going to make you horribly sick. And I knew that I had candida and leaky gut. And based on the research that I had done with candida and leaky gut, I knew that antibiotics would only further complicate those issues for me. And for years prior, anytime I got sick and they thought it was a cold or some type of virus, they would put me on a Z-Pack or a form of antibiotics. And every time I did that, I would tank again. And at one point I was put on a steroid and I felt great for maybe a week and then I tanked again. So for me personally, I knew that there's some correlation there. So I never tried any type of antibiotics for Lyme. And after reading what I did about holistic treatments and things like that, I just knew for me that was a better option. And I saw my cousin go through LimeStop and she got better. So I was like, okay, I'm going to give this a try. So for me, it was LimeStop or going to Germany. But LimeStop was a far cheaper option and a lot closer. Ashley, you mentioned candida earlier and again now. And, and when you mentioned it earlier, you said it was the root cause of a lot of your sinus pressure. And you even had an unnecessary surgery for your sinuses when really it was candida being the cause of your sinus pressure. Can you talk more about what candida is and how it causes your symptoms? So candida is an overgrowth of yeast in the body. And every person has candida to some extent. It just depends on if your gut flora is balanced. So if your gut flora is balanced, then it can keep the candida at a normal and acceptable level. And if it's not, which means you have either leaky gut or gut dysbiosis, then the candida or the parasites can thrive in that environment and grow. So what I was eating then contributed to the candida and would feed them oh, and the parasites as well. And so that would cause the sinus pressure. I had itchy eyes, the post-nasal drip, there's a whole bunch of different symptoms. And sometimes it's hard because a lot of the symptoms with candida and other Lyme or co-infections go hand in hand. So do I know 100% which symptom was Lyme related or candida related? No, but for sure for me, when I went on the anti-candida diet myself, when I self-diagnosed myself, that's when I was able to see a drastic change in some of my symptoms. Definitely didn't obviously get rid of anything 100% as far as Lyme and stuff, but it drastically reduced the symptoms that I was having. So leaky gut is another common thing that kind of goes hand in hand with Lyme disease and co-infections. Can you talk to our listeners about what leaky gut is and why it's so bad for you? So leaky gut is when your intestinal lining becomes, so everyone has, there's like junctions in there. And when those junctions are quote unquote holes, get bigger or more permeable, then food and other things are able to pass through that, which causes a lot of pain. And leaky gut can be caused by a variety of different things. You can get it from a concussion, a TBI, antibiotics, excessive alcohol use, excessive stress or trauma, or food that you're eating. There's a lot of different factors that can play into leaky gut. But looking back, I had a lot of digestive issues that everyone always said, oh, it's normal to feel that way. And then that kind of snowballed into 
You know, when you have gut dysbiosis or leaky gut, I look at it as you're opening the floodgates for infections or viruses or parasites or anything to thrive. So basically, you're giving them the environment they want. So actually, I understand that leaky gut is when food gets through your stomach and into your bloodstream, and your body then mounts an immune response to attack these foreign particles in your blood, which are really food particles. So not only is it painful, but then it creates inflammation by your body launching an immune response too. Is that correct? Yeah. Yep. That's the more scientific way to yep explain it. And typically those with leaky gut, now obviously this is not for every person, but typically you um, from there develop a food intolerance or sensitivity to the things that you eat the most. So my list of food intolerances or sensitivities was to pretty much everything that I ate daily. So I had to cut those out at one point while I was working on healing my gut and then reintroduce them one at a time to see if they continued to cause symptoms or irritation. And as you healed, did your food sensitivities lessen or even maybe go away? Yes. I had a list of, I don't even know how many. Um, And now... I mean, I still eat very healthily, so I choose not to eat dairy, gluten, or soy, or processed sugar to the best of my ability, but if I do happen to ingest those things, it's not an intense reaction like before where it would literally knock me out for a day or two, sometimes three days. Now, if I have something or I recognize that I've been, quote unquote, glutened, um, maybe my nose will start running. So to me, it's not as severe as before where I'd be doubled over with stomach cramps or I'd be nauseous or I'd have an instant migraine. So to me, they may not be completely gone, but it's a day and night difference if I happen to ingest something that I normally wouldn't eat or had an intolerance to before. So based on what we just discussed about leaky gut and candida, it seems like a really good life hack for limeys to at least try that would help most limeys would be to go and start a gluten-free diet, maybe a sugar-free diet to eat more healthy. And that would help them at least alleviate some of their symptoms until they can recover and be healthy enough to then reintroduce those foods back into their diet. Yeah, I can't stress enough the importance of looking at what you're eating, the toxins in your food and the products that you use, because with eating gluten, there are lots of chemicals that are sprayed on crops, which then you are ingesting. And then your body has to somehow try to process or detox those chemicals out. And for a lot of people with chronic illness, any type of chronic illness, your detox pathways are already clogged or unable to open to purge or, you know, excrete things. So when you're constantly throwing things into your body, it's like a toxic wasteland and nothing's going out. So it's just recirculating in your body. And gluten also can put holes in your intestinal lining, which then leads you to be more susceptible to leaky gut. So, and then also there's with dairy that can cause a lot of inflammation and a lot of mucus production. So certain people with different diseases or things like asthma or allergies should consider cutting out dairy to see if that helps decrease some of their symptoms. You went through an unbelievably difficult journey, but at the same time, you are making unbelievably creative uh, solutions to resolve your problems. And I, I just think that you, know, you deserve a lot of credit for having the intestinal fortitude and the emotional stability to do all of this and ultimately get yourself to a place where you're in remission. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I can't say that it was an easy journey but it is definitely worth it. And anyone else that's in the middle of this, when you're in that tunnel, it's awful. And it is so hard to describe, but I hope 
that you continue to fight. And I hope that you know that there is hope and that you are your best advocate. If you don't think something feels right or you want to look into something else, don't let anyone else tell you that you can't do your own research. Yes, you're not a doctor, but again, that's where I got a lot of my own answers is doing research. And then I would present them and say, okay, this is what I found. And, you know, eventually I came across doctors that were more in the functional medicine world and they knew about these things that I was presenting to them and they understood it and they listened. So keep fighting. Eventually you will get there. It is, remission is worth it to have a new world, new life, new purpose. It's, it's everything. So I want to learn a little bit more about LimeStop and how it really helped you and what it was like for you. So many therapies can seem scary. Like when you get IV antibiotics, you need to have a pick line put in or, or have your veins constantly be poked every day. So from the standpoint of LimeStop, what does it feel like and what was it like for you to experience that treatment? I would say the best way to describe it is it's, it's very different because it's not anything that you think of typically. Like normally you think, okay, I'm going to go to hospital. I'm going to sit down. They're going to put the IV in my arm, you know, basic things that anyone thinks about when they think of quote unquote treatment. But this is, you go into the chiropractor's office and you sit down and you talk about it. He muscle tests, he presses on different places. He talked about diet and how important that was. And then he would muscle test me for supplements based on what my body needed, what my food intolerances were and what my deficiencies were. So that was really interesting because it's not a typical process. And then I remember leaving with two, they weren't target size grocery bags, but they were two really big bags of supplements. And so at any point I was taking anywhere from, oh gosh, 50 or 60 supplement pills a day, which is very common in the Lyme world. But for me at that point, I hadn't taken that many in a day. So that was new. Yeah, it was very interesting. But again, it's the one thing, it saved my life. I tell people that Lime Stop stopped the tornado of Lyme. So it stopped all the craziness that was happening. It stopped all the spreading of it, stopped the infections. And now I'm working on the cleanup from Lyme. So the damage that the Lyme did in finding out what could be potentially long-term. Do I have long-term neurological damage or will things continue to come back? I'm working on rebalancing my hormones and my thyroid because Lyme destroyed both of those. So just looking forward to seeing what my new normal is. Ashley, in addition to Lyme Stop and the coffee enemas that you did, you also did other things to detox like infrared saunas and, and a lot of the common things that us Lymeys do. But you also put a heavy emphasis on your lymphatic system. So you did things like lymphatic deep tissue massages and other things to get your, your lymphatic system going, like dry brushing as well on a regular basis. So can you talk to our listeners about why you decided to do that and why that's so important to heal from Lyme? Yeah. So based on all the research I did, because I was purging so many chemicals and toxins within my body, whether it was, you know, the Lyme dying, which everyone know, knows that you can have a Herxheimer reaction, because I was targeting so many different things and I have the go big or go home mindset where I was going to do everything intensely for one year during treatment. So I wanted to ensure that my detox pathways were really open because if I was doing all these things to either kill or sweat out, you know, or detox, 
if I'm, my detox pathways aren't open, all that stuff is just sitting and circulating within my body, which then causes a separate reaction, which is the Herxheimer reaction or a detox reaction. So I wanted to make sure that if I was doing all these things to get the toxins out, that they were able to leave my body without, you know, continually recirculating within my body. So there'd be certain things that, you know, with coffee enemas, I would um, make sure that I would time the supplements that I would take, you know, if it wasn't near it, because it can pull out some good and bad sometimes, or um, with the dry brushing, I would make sure that I was hydrated before I did it, um, hydrated after, make sure I would shower after, all these little tips and tricks that I picked up from either different groups or other people that really helped my body. Now, that doesn't mean I didn't have any Herxheimer reactions or I didn't push myself too hard, but I really wanted to ensure that while I was doing all these different treatment modalities at home, that I was allowing my body to detox or eliminate things to the best of its ability that it could at that time. Thinking back, aside from LimeStop, which really was your game changer and thankfully was your first step, you did a lot of other things to help with your symptoms and also help eliminate parasites and sort of work in tandem with the LimeStop. What would you say was the best thing you did that helped you the most aside from LimeStop? Something simple and easy, I would say, would be the coffee enemas during treatment. Hands down, they were cheap. I could do them at home. So if, you know, if I did them and they didn't make me feel good afterwards, I could just rest and relax. So coffee enemas, hands down, were a lifesaver for me. The infrared sauna was another really good one. Cranial sacral helped with symptom management. It obviously didn't take anything away long term. Acupuncture was another big one that helped with symptom management and emotional management. Can you explain what cranial sacral is for us? So I'd, it's hard to explain exactly what it is. It's, they consider it an alternative therapy, obviously, like acupuncture and things like that. And it's really gentle touch. Like you can barely tell that they're touching you and they're able to manipulate different like joints or um, the cranium, different parts of your skull. So for me, she focused a lot, obviously, on the brain. At one point, she put her hand over my head and I felt a vibration sensation. And she said, do you feel that? And I said, yeah, what is that? And she goes, that's a line spiral keep being active right now. And then all of a sudden it stopped. And I only felt it once or twice, but she did something that she calls unwinding. And she would try to unwind the spiral keys out of my brain. So then the hope was that I could detox or flush them out at some point. I don't know the scientific understanding of it, but it was phenomenal. There would be different areas that she would touch, and there would be an instant sense of pain relief. You mentioned earlier the importance when, I guess, using a binder or even maybe even doing a coffee enema to be careful that you're not removing some of the good stuff in you as well. So can you talk more about that as a, as a tale of caution for people that want to use a coffee enema or use binders to eliminate toxins? Yeah, so I didn't venture into binders too much. I just stuck with a basic activated charcoal. I responded really well to it. It was cheap. So that's what I stuck with. And I didn't have to take it too often. Um, but some people take a binder like activated charcoal before doing a coffee enema because then it will grasp then the negative things and help flush them out of your system faster. And the hope is that you will not have 
Kirkheimer reaction or as drastic of one. So I would sometimes take it before I did the coffee enema, or if I did a coffee enema without taking one, I would take the binder afterwards. But you want to use caution with your supplements or if you're eating nutritionally dense um, meal, that if you do the coffee enemas or the binders, it pulls out the good and the bad at the same time. So try to space them out. I think it's two to three hours roughly. And also with coffee enemas, it is important to ensure that you are staying hydrated and replacing electrolytes. Because for some people, it can decrease their electrolyte status pretty fast. So with that, then I jumped down the juicing rabbit hole. So I would juice every day fresh vegetables or fruit. And I would have 8 to 12 ounces of juice after a coffee enema to help replenish my electrolytes. So you clearly have come a long way in the last three years since you've been diagnosed. And you've recovered a lot of the things in your life that you didn't have before. So can you talk to us about how you feel today and the things you're able to do now that you weren't able to do in the past? Yeah. So any given day right now, I would say I'm 85 to 95% better. For me, sleep is a huge one. Diet is also a huge one. So if I am not getting a lot of sleep, then I notice the fatigue setting in. Now, it's not the fatigue that I had when I was sick. But sleep and diet will always be things that I work on maintaining um, just because I know where I was at and I don't want to get back to that point, which means I'm slowing down. I listen to myself a lot more. So when my body, you know, gives me subtle hints of, hey, you need to take it easy, I now know to listen. Yeah, life's completely different. I'm back to working full time almost. Uh, We went on an international trip and it was the first international trip that I remembered without pictures. I told my husband once I got to remission that I wanted an international trip that I could um, remember and enjoy. So the little things, like when we went on the trip, I was able to sit outside and I could smell the air. I could see things. It was crisp. I was actually within my body. I could understand what was going on. I could fly without, you know, having my ankle swell up two to three sizes because of the inflammation. I could you know, walk around without a migraine and having every single step that I took, take my breath away. So the little things now I appreciate the ability just to go for a walk after work or go to the grocery store, or to know how to go to the grocery store and make a grocery list. I mean, those are the things that I appreciate now that I don't think I appreciated before. So Ashley, can you share with us how you've changed spiritually and emotionally as a consequence of this journey and how you're better because of it? So Lyme changes every part of, or I shouldn't speak for anyone else, Lyme changed every aspect of my life. Um, I had to learn how to do everything again. I had to learn to trust myself again. You have to learn how to have feelings again, be in a relationship, a give and take of a relationship, communicate, learn how to do simple things again that you did before. I completely changed careers. I don't want to say it was because of Lyme, but because of that, I left teaching um, and went back to school for holistic and functional nutrition. Basically, I just want to help others and hopefully give them more answers that I didn't have at the beginning and give them hope. You know, when you're in that tunnel, you want hope and just let them know that you you can come out of this. One big thing I took away from being sick was the people that checked in that sent a simple text message to ask how I was doing that meant the world. So I'm trying to get better about being that person for other people and just texting them and saying, hey, I'm thinking of you. 
That way they don't have to answer any questions if they don't want to, but they know that there is someone out there that, yeah, you may show up to work and you may look fine, but they're still thinking of you and they understand that there's still struggles that you may be going through. So reaching out to other people um, is one of my main goals now after being sick. Can you talk to us about what tools you use for your outreach and specifically why you're using social media as a tool for reaching out to folks who are going through the challenges of a tick disease journey? So for me, social media was huge because one, it can be accessed anywhere, but when you are bedridden or, you know, at home sitting on the couch because you can't go out, that's the easiest thing to pick up is your phone and go on to different either social media platforms, you know, support groups. And for me, I was able to connect with so many other people and read their story or read their journey or someone would post about dry brushing and I could learn a little bit about dry brushing. So it's a very hands-on way for people who aren't able to get out and interact or socialize with others, you know, in a real world sense for them to stay in touch with people and gain information from others. So Ashley, you've given so much to our audience already, but I have to ask one more thing of you. Would you please share with us what you would do if your husband came home from work and he had a tick biting him on his leg? I, well, before I would have freaked out, but now knowing what I know and just the journey um, that led me to LimeStop, honestly, I would take the tick and I would put it in a Ziploc bag and then circle probably on him or myself, whoever got it, where it was, so then you can keep an eye on it. And then I would send it in to my Lyme doctor and he would muscle test it then to tell me, okay, does this tick carry Lyme or any other tick-borne diseases, which helps to cut down, you know, the need to go in right away. And then given my personal stance on antibiotics, I, most people would go in for antibiotics right away, but knowing what I know, I would just bring them to my Lyme doctor and he would be able to be treated right away and then do things to, you know, focus on his gut health and his immune health and, so before I would have freaked out, but now that I know that LineStop works so well, at least it did for me, that's where I would bring him. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with Ashley Bellinger. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Ashley Bellinger and a tick disease journey, please visit her Instagram at OLSO2214. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a Tick Bite Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. We would appreciate it if you would contact us with any suggestions you have for improvements. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get the automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our listeners, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.